Hey, Ray, how you feeling? You know, when the temperatures drop and we get that winter feeling things, it really affects me more. That's when I get that aching in my bones. But I found that CBD and medicinal together can take care of the majority of my aches and pains. The ones that, you know, you have every day as you age, but also the ones that you get from all those activities of taking care of business in the fall. No kidding. I've been doing a lot of raking because we have so many old trees around our house that you rake one day and then two days later... The yard's filled up with leaves again, so it's a Think never of it ending. as a workout program. <laughs> it totally is a workout program, but like you, the CBD with the medicinal makes a huge difference in relieving pain and allowing me to function normally. And that's why we're happy to have One CBD as our sponsor here on the podcast. Uh, go to onecbd.com. That's O N E C B D.com. Or follow them on at One CBD Life on Twitter. And you can find out about all the aspects of what One CBD does to help you with your pain. One of the things that I like the most, Marcus, is that everything they purchase to be used in their CBD is 100% organically grown hemp free from pesticides and fertilizers, and that's important because it's important to know what you put in your body. I also like the fact that they're third-party lab tested and made in the USA. Because they're third-party lab tested, we know that there is some science backing up and making sure that what they're putting out is high quality and it's made right here in the USA, so jobs are provided. That science it's the science of nano emulsion. I don't know what it is, but it sounds impressive. And they know what it is, and they know how to take care of business when it comes to your pain. At 1CBD, check them out online at 1CBD.com. O-N-E-C-B-D.com. Achieve a renewed sense of balance. Ray Coob and Marcus in the Darkest here with a special guest. And Marcus, it's another one of those situations where there's three different people who are from three different slices of rock and roll life as far as our timelines. Uh, we're just chatting with Kevin Godley, who is our guest. Kevin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Good to be here. And we were just chatting about our perspective on time, right? P pretty much as far as how you, you know, where we were when. And, and uh, Mark is telling you where he was when uh, he first discovered your music in 10CC and me as well. And it, it made me realize we've had this happen a couple times where we have people who have three different slices because of our ages uh, yes. of rock and roll life. So uh, thanks for your perspective. And uh, we're really glad to have you here on the Imbalance History of rock and roll. I'm not sure I belong in rock and roll at all, but uh, it's nice to try. Well, Kevin, uh, the main word there, Marcus, back me up, is imbalanced, really. Truly. <laughs> we, are, we are imbalanced. But why would you say that you don't belong in rock and roll? Your songs were played on rock radio. You've done rock and roll-based music much of your yeah. entire life. Kind of, although I've, for some reason I've never really considered it rock and roll. It's, you know, it's it's like the flip side of of heavy metal being light alloy. It, it, it kind of feels like it, it kind of feels like that. It, I think that's probably because my roots aren't necessarily necessarily in rock and roll. They come from so many different diverse sources, and they 
they congeal into something that isn't pure rock and roll. That's probably the best description. It's not pure rock and roll. It doesn't. It doesn't aim to be. Um, it's got lots of things going on and lots of influences. So I just feel a, a little bit of a, a phony being called rock and roll. Let's just call it rot and ra or something else. <laughs> All right. Well, well, it's clear that you're not a strict adherent to the Chuck Berry Bible of rock and roll. Yeah. You guys were explorers when you were uh, with uh, 10CC, and this album, it's a perfect lead into talking about your new album, uh, Kevin. Uh, Kevin okay. Godley's new album, Muscle Memory, is out on, uh, technically, out on December 17th, correct? Correct. However... You've been kind of dribbling and drabbling uh, little bits out track by track, haven't you? Yes, that, that was an interesting way of looking at it. I mean, the, the label I'm with, this, the State 51 Conspiracy, they're an unusual label and they have a very strong handle on, on the way things work in today's marketplace. And, and the theory behind this really was was by dribbling these things out, as you put it, every a single every two weeks, to get people listening to the music up front of the release who wouldn't necessarily be interested if it just came out as an album. And it seems to be working, I must say. Well, that's great. I love it when a good marketing concept works. Right, Marcus? I You're agree. a marketing guy. I agree 100%. And I enjoyed listening to the record. I've listened to it once full fully all the way through and i've started a second time through there's a lot of different types of styles and influences crossing past their music i hear from the 80s uk like bands like the the who else were we uh talking about radiohead i hear a little bit of their type of a vibe as well as other types of bands from that era um uh -huh. do you do you listen to bands from that era and where did you draw influence and inspiration for the recording of this latest record let me give you a little bit more background on the record the the, the record began life with a a company called pledge music and the idea behind the record stems from the fact that the only instrument that I can play is drums. And drums aren't the ideal instrument to write a song with, as you can imagine. Yeah. So, so, unlike previous writing experiences, I, I thought how interesting it would be to ask people to send me pieces of instrumental music recorded instrumental music that they would like me to attempt to turn into songs. That was the theory behind this. Right, and there uh, were a couple tracks that people sent you uh, yeah. early on. What's the story on that? They just came out of the blue. Um, and the tracks that uh, came out of that were Periscope being one of them. And I'm sorry if I, so sorry if it's treason, but it seems Everybody I, know Everybody I know is glued to a screen And they're all following someone But the only one following me is my shadow And the other one being uh, All Bones of White But they came out of the blue asking me to turn their instrumental tracks into songs Which, which I did because I'd never done anything like that before and had a very transcendental experience doing it. I found it incredibly rewarding and revitalizing as a, as a writer. So I figured that would be an interesting 
way to approach an album. And I wasn't expecting to get more than, I don't know, maybe 50 submissions back, but I, right. I got 280, 286 pieces of music. I saw that, and it just blew yeah. my mind. That and, and, and out of that, you, you got it down to 11 songs on the album. Is that right? That's right. I You know, I had to kind of go through them and try stuff until I got my bearings. Uh, and I eventually, I chose the 11 pieces, one at a time, obviously. I felt comfortable or reasonably uncomfortable enough to produce some interesting results with. And uh, that's the album. So there was, there was no conscious sense of trying to make everything gel as a style or everything fit together in any way. I, th I think the album does, probably because it's me singing all the parts. But there is definitely a sense of something unified about the Finnish thing, which is kind of surprising in a way. You connected quietly with uh, other writers and kept it, um, you know, off everybody's radar, including uh, Gautier, who you've talked about, uh, with Song of Hate. If I had a doll of you, I'd sprinkle it with roses, a morning dew. Yeah. Anybody that people might know who made the cut and anyone you can talk about who maybe didn't? No, not really. I mean, I think Gautier is is, is probably the most well-known name on there. It's difficult for me to, and maybe unfair of me, to try and define them. Sorry, I've just remembered the other track, which was Expecting a Message, which is the first track on the album. Uh, that's the other track that came to me as opposed to the other way around. I'm expecting... I'm expecting a message from something out of this world. I'm expecting a message that I really want to hear. I was told to come here and wait for a signal. I was told to hold on to my head and cover my eyes. So they're all artists working in different in different areas, in experimental areas, in alternative areas. Some aren't even professional musicians, I don't even think. So no, there, there, I doubt if there is a name there that you would recognize. Did the lyrics come together with the music after you heard it, or had you had the lyrics and you fit the music with your lyrics that you had written? Mostly it was reacting to what was going on in the world around me when I decided to work on a particular track. I didn't begin the project with any preconceived ideas about what I should or shouldn't be writing about. There was a couple of instances where I already had a lyric and I was kind of waiting for tracks to show up that might fit. And that happened a couple of times, although the lyrics I had worked better on the third attempt on a different track <laughs> uh, than on the original attempt. It's quite weird how that works sometimes. Um, but for the most part, the lyrics the lyrics came as a reaction to listening to what I was being sent. I'm just fascinated by the whole approach and concept of uh, the way you put this all together. And you've really got like a lot of really interesting songs that, like you said, fit together. Things like uh, Ghosts of the Living. Strange how they haunt you. Ghosts of the living Strange how they wander 
around in your mind. Yeah. And uh, songs that have a pointed message, too, like the Bang Bang Theory. Yeah. Uh, no uh, shying away from politics or the controversial statements in, uh, in, in your approach here, too, right? Well, there's no escape from yeah, you got that I can't, right. I can't turn on the radio or the television or go online without being confronted with a ton of bullshit heading my way about yeah. how about that dysfunctional way of the world at the moment. And you know, for a, for a lyricist who's looking for something to write about, thank you, Donald Trump. <laughs> I got thing, got new thing to make the closing bell ring. If you can find me a loophole. Now I'm just doing what needs to be done To keep us in the big chair Let's check out the Bang Bang Theory The Bang Bang Theory Which says the more guns there are The safer it is to walk Anytime there's uh, turmoil in the world No matter where it is where, When we all kind of get ourselves involved around it There's yeah. always great art to be had and in our era, in our lives, especially from the you know this early mid '60s on, a big part of that art is music, and the words can be so powerful. So thank you for putting this kind of a thing together. How's this fit into the the big picture for you? Is this just something that you felt and wanted to get done, or is this the beginning of a next phase for you? It's too early to say, frankly. <laughs> It was something that, that sounded like an interesting thing to do. I've been kind of itching to make some music for a while since the last musical project I did with Graham Gorman back in 2006, which was great fun. And when this process began, it was like, okay, well, let's, let's kind of follow it and see where it goes. But there was a certain point where it became 100% necessary to get it done. I was really enjoying doing it and totally immersed in doing it. I guess that's why, where the title came from, in a, in a way. It was, it was suddenly part of, my, part of my DNA came back to life, remembering how exciting it was to, to make music again. And in this case, I didn't have to answer to anybody. So it was a, it was a challenging situation for me but one that I, I took on and really got into. So for, for, for kind of the first time ever, I allowed myself the freedom to, to follow my instincts, in, uh, my musical instincts. I'm kind of excited because I think I've found my own voice that I didn't know I had. He is Kevin Godley. The album we're discussing is Muscle Memory. It's releasing the whole thing uh, online and on CD, I guess, uh, on December 17th. So if uh, you're listening after that, make sure you rush to it. And if you have a 10cc fan in your life, I would say that they would love to have it under the tree or in the stock. Agre <laughs> agreed? Agreed, Kevin? I, I would hope so, yeah. <laughs> it's maybe, I hope it's not too hardcore for my original fans because we, we're a bit more humorous and a little more gentle. But this, cheeky. This, this, you guys yeah. are very cheeky. We were cheeky. This is, this is a bit more like a kick in the balls and a tickle under the chin. <laughs> it's the imbalanced history of rock and roll he's kevin godley ray Koo with marcus in the darkest uh pause for the cause that refreshes and back with more with kevin godley i was talking to paul and pete man and they want to offer a special thank you to all of the listeners of the imbalanced history of rock and roll what kind of special are you talking about everybody likes free beer marcus 
How about a free 10-ouncer when you go in and mention the imbalanced history of rock and roll when you sit down and order your first drink? Free 10-ouncer, yes. Some of the most amazing brews you're going to find at any brewery in the Philadelphia area right there at York and Montgomery in the heart of Hatboro. We're talking about Crooked Eye Brewery pouring the cure for what ails you since 2014. My favorite of all the Crooked Eye beers is the Black Eye Stout. I love Oh, yeah, you love that. that. Yes, you do. So smooth and just so full of flavor. Jeff manages to get more flavor, and the way he kind of masks the edge on the hops is oh, beautiful. And you can't beat going in, sitting down, saying, hey, I listened to the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll. May I please have that free 10-ouncer? <laughs> free beer. Why not stop in and get a growler, a pint, a crowler? Take some home with you. And don't forget, the entertainment's back. It's coming back in stages. There's more and more stuff going on. And find out what events are back and when they are. It's Crooked Eye Brewery on Facebook. Right in the heart of Hatboro, the cure for what ails you. And a free 10-ouncer. When you mention the imbalanced history of rock and roll, and we thank them for their support. We are back after a refreshing pint from Crooked Eye, and again with us is Kevin Godley. He's got a new album coming out December 17th, and we are talking about that as well as 10CC and some of his other uh, projects that he's done over his very very exciting career you said that the last time you made music was like 2005 2006 and you felt the need to make music again during that time have you still been had you still been playing the drums and writing songs and putting down lyrical bits here and there or did you just go cold turkey and then jump back into it because of everything else you had going on in life no there was no turkey involved cold or otherwise (laughs) it it was uh, i'm a vegetarian (laughs) I, I, i think what happens if you're a musician and you sort of back away from music for a while it, it doesn't go away you know when I'm driving around I'm singing or tapping or I'm making notes or remembering <laughs> that's good remember- right? yeah so it, it, it never went away so I guess what happened was it was all kind of backing up in my head um, without even being that aware of it and when this opportunity presented itself it was an opportunity for it all to come pouring out in one way or another but no, it, it never stops. It just it just takes a back seat for a while. During the making of Muscle Memory, were there any points that were really frustrating and until you heard the final result of the song, you weren't quite sure what you were getting? Actually, no, because the thrill, the thrill for me, and I think in making music generally, and particularly with this project, I, I, I relish the vibe of not knowing what I've got until I've actually got it. I enjoy the process of struggle, just working through it until I get to something that begins to make sense. I don't want to know what I'm aiming for. With this project more than any other, all I'm really doing is reacting to something that somebody has sent me. All I did was pull the instrumental tracks into GarageBand, set up a microphone and start singing. So it's it's a it's it's just a reactive process, uh, and as soon as something interesting comes out, I record it and stop, and then on another track, pick up where that left off and record something else. So it's a patchwork quilt of of random ideas that somehow somehow began to make sense at a certain point for every track, and I didn't tamper with it too much. I didn't want to do too many overdubs. I didn't want to change the structure of anything that I'd been sent. 
I just wanted to go with what I had and, and keep an open mind about it until I felt that it was there was enough material there for this song to stop and so on with, with all the other tracks too. So I didn't want to be opinionated about it. I didn't want to say, well, that's not bluesy enough or I want that to sound jazzier. I was hoping that each track would find its own character, which I think it did. You mentioned that you felt like you were flying blind a little bit. The question yeah. I have is, uh, did you ever make any uh, contact, like we're doing this interview on Skype or uh, oh. social media or email, did you have uh, any direct contact where you actually put you know, the uh, face with the, the person and all that with your collaborators? If, you know, I know it's uh, 286 is a lot, but yeah. uh, did you have much contact with them that way? No. I... I had a few conversations with a few of them, but not, there weren't so much creative conversations as response conversations. I mean, let's take the first track that I worked on, which was All Bones Are White. Mm -hmm. um, I found the backing track and enjoyed the backing track that was sent to me by a chap called Giles Perry. I was sitting down to, to begin work on it at the same time as the episode that happened in Charlottesville in 2017 kicked off. All bones are white. All bones are white. Wow. I was watching the news at the same time as I was listening to this track because the news the, the news became the visual and the music became the soundtrack to the visual and it was screaming out to be spoken about uh, so that's how it came about so so the answer is yes we did speak but it but it was never like well you know why don't we try this on this chorus and maybe extend that verse saying this that and the other in in every single case i did something demoed it sent it off and people kept, went back to me and said that's great carry on so there was the spirit of that, we yeah. need more of the spirit of that. And I'm sure some of them were are younger folks. And to yeah. be able to interact with a guy who's respected and revered in many circles, right? Uh, you're you're also uh, highly considered as a, a director, which is what you spent a lot of time doing in your career. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, it's it's got to feel good to have people want to work with you guys really put your you put your heart and your art out there together and the results are really good and i i just got to thank you for for doing this kind of thing and promoting it as a way for artists to work together because that happens when you do a project like this well it's it's gratifying to hear you say that what what's also interesting is that it is a true remote album i probably should have thought of uh, thought of doing it six months ago as a Post to back in 2017 because now it's the only way to work like this with other people. Yeah. Ahead um, of the curve, man. Yeah, thank goodness. Otherwise, we would have had COVID 19 in 2017. <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's what's interesting. I proved to myself that A, that I can, I can still write interesting stuff. But it's also proved that people can work this way because music transcends language, it transcends conversation, certainly transcends emails. I think it's true to say it's the language of the soul. As for talking to them, and I'm always coming back with a positive response, they may have been humoring me. Who the hell knows? But well, you, choose, well, you know, choose... wait a second, Kevin, because, you know, a lot of the people who um, you're talking to, the generation of people you're talking to, a lot of them... Yeah 
are uh, people who remember MTV when uh, the, when a band could break off of a video, and and you've certainly directed your share of those. That's true. Uh, can we talk about that for a second? I'd I'd love to ask you how you got into doing videos, how you got into directing it overall, but how you got into doing videos and how you hooked up with, and I don't know, people like the fine young cannibals and you produced a lot of, and direct a lot of videos for Brian Adams and you too, and other people. And how'd you get around to doing that? And how was that as far as being a satisfying part of your career? Very satisfying. But like most of the things that, that have happened to me, it's, it's as much accident as it is design. My background is during the, the 1960s was art art school. So I'm an art school boy, so I have a visual background, along with Lowell Cream, who was the same. Uh, we both went to different art colleges during that period of time. So on leaving art college, we went straight into music <laughs> for right. some unknown reason. It's a commonality uh, that we've noticed in uh, on a lot of the stories we tell here on the podcast. Yeah. Art school connections often in the same school, and then, you know, well, okay, off to rock the world for a lot of people. Yeah. It's kind of cool. Yeah. Well, art college was an incubator for all sorts of things during that period of time. Sort of freedom of expression in all the art forms. So it was the perfect place to be. But what happened was... We made, it has to be around about 1978-79 or something like that. We, we recorded a single called An Englishman in New York and we weren't a touring band. We weren't really a band at all. It was just myself and Mole Cream. So once we recorded this track and we knew it was going to be a single released, we were trying to figure out how to promote it and we came up with an idea for a short film that we that we took to the record label uh, and said listen we have an idea for a short film to promote it as we can't tour it and nor do we want to one may be able to get it shown on various there weren't that many programs but there's two or three programs in the uk that it could have been shown on and they said okay we'll we'll, we'll pay for that but we have to get um a proper professional director to do it for you because you've never done it before. You don't know a camel from a camera. So, <laughs> which, which, which is pretty much true at the time. And so, so we did it. And as well as being the performers in this video, we soaked up every piece of information about how to do these things. And it rang so many bells with us. It, it sort of, it was like, hang on a minute, fuck. This process is amazing. Um, we should be doing this. This is what we have to be doing. And don't forget, this was right at the very beginning of the 1980s. That the term music video didn't even exist yet, frankly. And people were beginning to make these films purely because, in some cases, when a band couldn't show up to appear live on the show, they would send a little film instead. So there was the very beginnings, the germs of an industry being born. So for the very first time in our lives, we, we found ourselves in a position where we were at the start of something. We certainly weren't there at the start of rock and roll, but we were there at the start of this. And, and eventually what happened is that the Englishman in New York film came out right. and the record was a hit all over Europe. And so people saw it and began to come to us to make videos for them. And wow. the, rest, the rest is history, really. And I think... 
I think it worked particularly well because musicians tended to enjoy working with us more than other directors because we came from a musical background, so we taught the same language. That makes a lot of sense, but didn't happen all the time in those days. You guys also innovated that. Yeah, well, we didn't know we were innovating anything. At the very beginning of the industry, the, the director was king because nobody really knew what the value of making the videos. You know, it's all very nice and pretty, but would it have any impact on sales? Would it help to promote it? And initially, it was pretty vague because MTV didn't exist. So if you were approached to do a video, nine times out of 10, it was, okay, we like these two videos you've done before. Would you do one for us, please? Here's a bunch of money, off you go. As opposed to, well, we need you to present the treatment and we'll sit down and examine them uh, and see which is the most commercial option, which is what it eventually became. But in uh, the very beginning, it, it was a director's medium and a director's medium only. Kevin, so, the concept of that, of just handing over a pile of money to someone uh, to just make a video in, this cur <laughs> in, the, in the current musical culture... If anybody's listening, a, like a younger <laughs> performer or, or somebody who's looking at it from a per performer's perspective now, they've got to think that's insanity, right? Well, yes and no, because... I mean, you guys well, had track record, which... but I'm just saying, the, 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 you know, to just kind of say, you know, guys, we know you, we trust you, and here's uh, the money all you need to do the, the production you have and the idea you have. It's just, to, these days, that's not happening, I guess, is uh, no. the point I'm trying to make. Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. But it was a gradual it was a gradual process in that the amount of money that we had at the very beginning wasn't that much. I think probably in the early days that maybe about twenty five thousand pounds was a fucking good budget. Sure. And you know, girls on film, I think probably cost about that much to make. Wow. Oh, wow. But, uh, it's yeah. what you do with it, though. It's what you make yeah. of the budget. And uh, that's the art part in it, too. What you can do with the art inside a budgetary restriction, you know? Yeah. But we were well, lucky. We really didn't know what we were doing. I mean, we passed the sort of camel camera. And we also knew what a camera could do and the difference between a video camera and a film camera. 35 millimeters, 16 millimeter cranes, steady cams, so on and so forth. Right. But the thing that drove us more than anything else was our desire to put any particular idea that we could see in our heads up on screen. I think probably because of our connection with music, our ideas were seen to be appropriate for certain pieces of music and, and we were allowed to make them. I think probably the most extreme example of it working well was, was, uh, was Rocket for Herbie Hancock which for its time was pretty out there. Groundbreaking, man. Groundbreaking, Groundbreaking. video, yeah. holy cow. And yeah. what the song did for for Herbie was also groundbreaking as well. I didn't realize yeah. you guys did that. Oh yeah, it was, I mean, it was a, again, a very strange situation. It just, again, it came out of the blue. We were set this track to listen to, to come up with an idea for and we didn't have anything. And one day I was watching television, a local news show, and there was a little slot on the news show featuring the work of Jim Whiting, um, who made these bizarre hydraulic robots. And I saw this and managed to get it down on 
the excuse for a videotape recorder that existed in those days. Uh-huh. Um, and it was like, fuck, this looks like that sounds. So it was a match made in heaven. So wow. it was, but what is even stranger is that we weren't, as far as I recall, asked to come up with the treatment and explain what we had in mind. We were just, uh, they said, okay, great, you've done all these videos, you're fucking good, we like your work, let's just do it, we'll send Herbie over for a day, and you film him however you want to do it, and then just show us the film when it's done, which is pretty much what we did. I mean, <laughs> had, we, had, we, had we have been the same mind and body at the time, we, we would have balked at doing what we did. But, you know, we were young and we were reckless and daring. And <laughs> I love it. I, I, just, I love probably, the story. I'm probably a little bit stoned as well. But <laughs> we knew when I got that, that this this would look great. This would look great because it looked like it sounded. So we just we followed our idea to the nth degree, uh, worked our nuts off overnight to finish the edit and sent it off to them silence for a couple of days at least herbie didn't understand what he was watching apparently didn't get it at all but once it started to get a little visibility on mtv it like went crazy it was on high rotation pretty quickly because it was so different because it was so unusual and it struck a nerve i think it won five or six spacemen the first mtv awards wow Um, Marcus, I want to ask you, we're talking about this period in time and this music and, and how it hit on MTV. Where were you and what was your absorption of th- this video and some of the other things we were talking about? I remember seeing this video and being blown away, very similar to what Peter Gabriel did with Big Time. It was so different. Right. It was so cutting edge. And it stood out from all of the other videos that were out there. And I think... That, besides the fact that I was familiar with uh, Herbie Hancock's music, uh, made me like it a little bit more. But like Girls on Film you mentioned, I remember watching that video and just being like, oh, that's so cool. (laughs) Just watching that video. And I was a young kid at that point. So watching Duran Duran with all these supermodels on a boat, you're just like, oh, my. Hey, I did (laughs) want to ask you before I forget, knowing that when it was released, that the entire world was going to see the video for the Beatles' real love. How did you approach that? Well, A, I was flattered to be asked. And the, and the video that they'd done prior to that, I think they released two singles from that collection. I forget what the first one was called, uh, but it was, a, it was a much more conceptual piece. So when it came to my turn to do Real Love, it, it, was, it was down to be a more documentary-based uh, experience, using footage that was shot during the re-recording of the track. And my job was basically, more than anything else, was an editorial exercise, and also adding some visual glue that said Beatles, that was more experimental. It was very exciting for me to, to A, I've been initiated into a great period of music and inspired by the Beatles in the 1960s, and then to find myself working with the Beatles. Uh-huh. <laughs> or, yeah, all the, the Threetles, as I like to call them. <laughs> right. Uh, oh, but, oh, that song was, the other song was Free as a Bird. That's the awesome. one, which was yeah. a great piece. It was a, it was a really good piece of film. Just Were you guys different. big Beatle kids? Um, oh, yeah. Uh, 
Because I mean, I I hear stuff like Rubber Bullets and and Donna, and I always yeah. immediately thought, oh wow, these guys love the Beatles too. Well, I remember one very specific episode when I was at college, when um, Sergeant Pepper came out, and I sort of rolled up to college uh, after a weekend at home and walked into college, and work had stopped in every single department: sculpture department, painting department graphic design, photography, textile, you name it. Nobody was working, but they all had a record deck and each different department was playing a different track. And the students and tutors were all pouring over the, the gatefold sleep. So it was like, instead of walking to college, it was like walking into the middle of revolution number nine with all the tracks playing at the same time. Oh, my. It, it was like, what the fuck is going on? But it, did uh, did you think time. you were having a flashback at that moment? You know, like, well, what's going on? Yeah, <laughs> I thought, have I come to the right college? What's this about? And and But it was, at the time, a revolutionary moment up to that point. Music, uh, rock and roll music or whatever you care to call it, had been... You know, a little bit of a youth rebellion, but it never really touched the fringes of art. You know, where Elvis opened the door a crack, this 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 kicked the fucking door off its hinges creatively, and it, it was it was extraordinary being there at that time to witness it happen. So when I had the opportunity to do something for the Beatles, it was like scared the shit out of me, obviously, but it was yeah. great. As it would, but it was it was an honour. Okay, so there's a funny story relating to uh, the editing of the Real Life in that the mix we were given to work with when we were cutting was wasn't a very good mix. In fact, it was deliberately so. Uh, John's voice was very low in the mix because they were worried about it getting out. Somebody actually putting it out there and people hearing it before the release. I couldn't hear it very well. And the way I work is is reactively. I like to react to what I'm hearing. And I couldn't hear the vocals. So just as a workaround for, for the editing, um, I went into a studio and overdubbed my own voice singing the song on top just so I could hear it properly. Wow. And, we, and we worked with that. Unfortunately, that got out. <laughs> so, so somewhere, somewhere in the well, at least the darkest, EMI boys were right about their instinct. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So somewhere on the deepest, darkest net, there is a there is a sort of John Paul, George Ringo, and Kevin. Speaking of Kevin, he is Kevin Godley. He is our guest here on the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll. Marcus, I know you have a couple questions for Mister Godley. I noticed that one of the videos you produced was Larry Adler and Kate Bush, The Man I Love. Mm. I'm a big fan of Kate Bush's music, have been since the 80s, late 70s. What was it like to work with her on that project? Well, that was the second time I'd worked with her, or we'd worked with her. We, we did um, a video with Peter Gabriel and Kate Bush. Don't give up. Don't give up. Exactly. Right. 
and um, so so we knew each other. But working with her on that was, was special. Um, a because of the song, and because she's such an extraordinary talent, and we got on pretty well. So it, it was a lovely day. very simple there was nothing too conceptual going on and it was done efficiently shot well lit well and the result was very good so that was that was great that was great fun I, I'm a huge admirer of, of Kate's as are you in all of your years in the business is there a musician that you've wanted to work with or collaborate with that you weren't able to due to timing or other circumstances I, I would love to do something with Tom Waits still hmm I would have loved to have done something with Marvin Gaye, but that ain't gonna happen. <laughs> Did you uh, ever meet him? Did you ever meet Marvin Gaye back in the late seventies, early eighties? I didn't know. Um, did you? No, I was no, a kid. no. I would. We just to. were there with our nose pressed to the radio, man. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Listening to Marvin Gaye, discovering all these new bands out of England like 10CC. Yeah. Oh, you know what? Before I forget, you did the video for one of my favorite TV theme songs, the the original video of Alabama Three doing "Woke Up This Morning," didn't you? Yeah, that's correct. Yes, I did. Did any of your clips make it into Tony's little ride in from Jersey? Not as applied to the actual credits for the program. Uh, okay. What, what we did was we took the credits from the program and we shot bits to insert into that, if you know what I mean. I do. Absolutely. Wow, man, you've done so much, Kevin. I can't tell you what a thrill it is to talk to you as a kid who, it's, it's put this way, I bought 100cc just on hearing Wall Street Shuffle and I'm not in love. And I was like, all right, oh, I got to find out more about these guys. <laughs> and, uh, and Marcus, I know you came along later in the ride and um, maybe they're not exactly, like we, we talk about our teenage years a lot, Kevin, and you were right in there for me. I'm a, a few years younger than you, but I, you guys were like larger than life. And I'm sure my mother somewhere is nodding. Yep, he would never stop playing that damn record. But, <laughs> but I, I, I got to tell you, it's a thrill to have you on here on the podcast. And I got to thank our buddy, our mutual friend, Scott Bluebond, for hooking us all up today here on the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. Marcus, any closing questions or thoughts? You're releasing a new album December 17th called Muscle Memory. Why should yeah. people listen to it and check it out? This isn't me saying it. A number of people have said it to me. Uh, it sounds boastful, but it's not. Uh, people have said that this is me at the height of my powers. And I would never actually say it myself, but it does feel like that to me. So, I, And because it is so different to what I've done before, but yet retains something of where it came from. I think it's I think it's a worthwhile listen for a lot of people. It retains what you remember, but kicks it up the street a while and takes it to a slightly darker place. And as well as being challenging, it's also entertaining. He's Kevin Godley. Check out Muscle Memory out December 17th. Thanks for being on the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll, man. Well, it certainly is imbalanced, and I hope to help to tip it in the right direction. <laughs> or the wrong direction. <laughs> That's our direction, man. Also, Kevin, are you on social media? 
And do you want to send people to your website as well before we finally wrap it up? Yes, I'm on Twitter and I'm on Instagram. And your website is kevin-godly.com. That's correct. That's going to do it. I'm the Doc, Ray Coop. I'm Marcus in the Darkest. And we'll catch you next time on the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.